Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Today, we're going to be talking about the self-help book, Practical Ways to Never Stop Growing. Our guest is the author, Jared Grabiel. So, Jared, tell us a little bit about yourself. Great question. I am 31, born and raised in Lakeland, Florida, which is central Florida, New Orlando, and Tampa. Came to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, like eight years ago with a large health club and pursued health club management for some time left to start my own company, Superfit Foods, which I'm sure we'll talk about for a moment, and did that for six years. And of course, throughout that time, a lot of entrepreneurial leadership struggles and challenges and adversity to overcome and put it in paper and hopefully help others grow through those challenges as well. In his self-help book, Six Practical Ways to Never Stop Growing, Jared outlines six practical ways to live a life of constant growth while avoiding stagnation or burnout. So confidence, competence, clarity, character, connection, and commitment. This short and insightful guide is filled with inspiration and encouragement, and it's designed to give you the perspective you're looking for no matter what's going on in your life. Jared joins me today to discuss his book and how listeners can begin to re-energize and never stop growing. So post-COVID, I know a lot of us have struggled and having a bit of an inoculation to re-energize and refocus ourselves. This seems like really good timing. Yeah, it's odd because I wrote the book prior to COVID and it went to print like mid-COVID. And of course, it was published officially January of this year. So there's not really any specific context around the pandemic throughout last year and of course this year. But to pursue a life of never-ending growth is to overcome challenges that we are not planning for. So having the confidence, the competence, the clarity, the commitment, the connections, and the character to overcome things like COVID, or at least the challenges that things like COVID presents, is always timely in my opinion. And my thought is the idea of character, values, clarity, kind of who I am and what I stand for. And it seems like the pause of COVID gave people the opportunity to rethink. So I realize you submitted it prior and that we are having this conversation at this point in time. It's an opportunity, I think, for a lot of people who were incredibly successful, hit the whatever happened during COVID, either life accelerated for some and it shifted for most. And so now as we refocus on what will life look like post-COVID, we hope post-COVID, it seems like good timing to engage this to rethink who am I and where am I going? You know, I think that's a unique thing about the book is that One, I kept it short for a reason, 
because I want it to be more of a manual that you can revisit from time to time. And last year was an opportunity for a lot of people to gain clarity, like you've kind of talked about a little bit. And the book has these six different things. And one of the recommendations early on in the introduction of the book is that, you know, not to try to spread yourself thin and run 100 miles an hour in all six directions, but to read the book and identify which one of these six things do I need to put as a top priority in my life and in this season right now. You focus on that for a period of time, whether it's three days, three weeks, or three years. And once you feel like you've gained a level of success in that area, then you ultimately revisit a different one, right? Because the idea is to live a life of never-ending growth. And I think that's where a lot of people gain fulfillment. Maybe they haven't identified that never-ending growth is what gives them fulfillment. But I think that it is, generally. And so for me, oftentimes, if I'm having issues in relationships, then I might say, well, maybe I need to revisit my character. Maybe it was me, right? And I'll read the chapter, despite having written it. It's, I mean, it's based on a lot of information that I've pulled from other sources, right? So it's not all this unique information from my brain. And so I'll read this book myself and say, you know, here's some tips and tricks and information and maybe struggling in confidence because I'm transitioning careers and I'm thinking through like, what do I want to do next? Am I even good at that? And I'll reread the confidence chapter and, you know, apply some of the practical steps to increase my confidence or the same could be said for competence and connections, et cetera, right? So it's really a, um, a seasonal book where you can reapply these things and you can read one of the chapters in maybe 20, 30 minutes. I like the idea that we revisit at the point when we need it and that it is short enough that I don't have to sit down and spend a week rereading between meetings and all my other life commitments. Yeah, you know, some of the best books in the world can be daunting to revisit. In my opinion, some of the best books in the world. I'm a big business book guy, leadership book guy. And so sometimes picking those back up, I'm like, man, this is another two months of my life. I wish they had partitioned this book in such a way that I knew which part I wanted to reread right now. And that's what I tried to do. Again, this is a little simpler to write the type of book that I've written versus maybe a Jim Collins leadership book. But at the same time, I wanted to be extremely user-friendly and I wanted to introduce reading in and of itself to a population of people that don't typically read. It's a very introductory book, but the principles are, they're surface level, but they're deep at the same time because we're talking about never-ending growth. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's complicated. It depends on who you are. Who is your target audience? Because I come from a business background, of course, there's a specific demographic that we do targeted ads to and things of that nature. But I know it's vague and it's probably not what you want to hear, but it's anybody that wants to live a life of never-ending growth, which I would imagine is anybody 18 years or older, hopefully. As we get in our older age, sometimes that might seem less possible. But, you know, I want to inspire all generations of people to know that it's never too late or too early to pursue a life of growth, right? It's self-growth. In a world now, in the 21st century, where we're so empowered to be independent in a great way, but also in a bad way, like we should know that it is well within our control to live a life of never-ending growth. Maybe not always in career, which is why we can revisit character. Mm -hmm. Maybe not always in character, which is why we can revisit connections but there's always a burner of the stove that you can turn on. But to answer your question more specifically, you know, we targeted millennials, so ages 25 to 44 primarily. That's who is most popular among, but my goal is for this book to be for everybody. When we look at what's happened again in the context of COVID and how many jobs are changing and how many low-skilled jobs will go away in the next 
10 to 20 years, the idea that for everyone, growth is required. And it's interesting how often I work with leaders and senior leaders, anywhere from 40 to 60, who will say, you know, that you can't teach an old dog new tricks or some of that stuff, which we know, frankly, from brain science isn't true. And the idea that if you plan to work another 10 years and you don't think you need to grow, you are at risk of not making it to that 10-year goal because organizations are changing quicker than that and not growing for many people will not be an option. And if you get encouraged to exit before your end date, catching up is going to be a lot more complicated. Yeah. And I think in life, we are our own worst enemies when it comes to living a quality life. And when people say things like you can't teach old dogs new tricks, that's a cop out and it's their fault. You know, there are exigent circumstances why we get let go from jobs and why we phase out of jobs and jobs disappear, but it is well within our control in America, especially to live a, a relatively good life. And I think I'm a Christian. And so that's my worldview. And I think that God has given us a, a responsibility to grow it doesn't necessarily mean that we have a responsibility to be rich in money or to be famous. Like those things aren't responsibilities, I think, of the human race, but to grow nonstop, right? To take what he's given us and to multiply it in some way. That's our responsibility. Whether we're 17, then I would say more importantly, if we're 55, because we've been around long enough to know that we have been given this opportunity. And so, yeah, and, and to double down on that, that remark about, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. When people say that, I used to be a personal trainer and I was really passionate and great at what I did. And I had a, a few clients that were older, but one in particular that had early onset dementia, he would forget things. Of course, this is the early onset. So he was up, he had his good days and his bad days. But when you say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I trained this guy to do some very unique movements, really just to challenge his brain and his body at the same time. But we're talking about one-legged box squats and reverse cable archers, like things that most people in the gym don't even know how to do at age 25. And so I watched it happen. People can grow in any stage of their life. That's really what I'm getting at. And I just wanted to kind of give an illustration around that. Thank you. So I think we've hit hard on the business case or the value proposition for continuing to grow. And so you mentioned in the book, one of the stats is of 2000 people interviewed, 69% felt trapped in the same routine and over 40% are generally unhappy with their lives because of it. Why do you think that the 40% are stuck and staying there and, and you would say willing to stay there or unable to shift? A couple of things. One is I think a lot of people are convinced that they're not able to grow, right? Like they just aren't gifted like the people they see on TV or on social media. And that's a mental block that we've just got to break through as a, as a people. Like you are capable of a never ending life of growth. You know, I can't do much to that mindset. I can try to inspire people maybe show them through my actions and talk about other people like the guy that I used to train. But the second thing and more practical thing is people don't set goals. They say that they do, but a goal is defined as something in the future that you've created a plan to accomplish. And a plan is something that you take pen to paper, right? And so a lot of people say that I have a goal of, we'll say losing 30 pounds. And then I might ask, oh, okay, well, what's your plan? Have you written that down? No, I haven't written it down. Have you made a plan? No, I haven't made a plan. That's not a goal. That's a dream. So a goal is something more practical that a lot of people aren't setting. And there's a couple of reasons I believe for that, right? I think our ego gets in the way of goal setting. And this is more 
deeply rooted, but you know, a lot of people don't set goals because of fear of not accomplishing them and therefore being a failure. And so by just not setting goals in the first place, you can't fail, right? And so it's kind of like, it's better to love than, and have lost and never to love at all. Some people just choose never to love so they don't lose, right? So that's another thing. People aren't setting goals. But for people that are setting goals, most people just aren't very good at it. I guess I was just gifted with a very practical mindset. I'm pragmatic about how I set goals. I take steps. There's an acronym that I explain from Brian Tracy, who's this goal setting expert, kind of an old school guy, right? So when people set goals, they're not doing it right. For example, let's say that Susie soccer mom says, I'm going to lose 30 pounds by December and, you know, we're in October, right? And so you're like, well, Susie, do you plan on losing that in eight weeks? She's like, yeah, I'm going to do this one thing, this other thing that my friend did and something on social media. And that's just not a good way to set goals, right? So the book goes into all these different ways that you can set more successful goals and accomplish them. But I think the three main things is one, people don't believe they can grow. Two, people aren't setting goals. And three, for people that are setting goals, they're just not doing it very well. So you're a fan of using SMART goals. Can you tell our listeners what that is? And as important as setting them, it sounds like you're saying, I, I have a goal, I have a plan, I monitor the plan, and I follow up. This is not new to many successful leaders, but it still seems like lots of people who know better know this. We would do it at work. And yet we're not doing it in our personal lives in some cases. So the SMART acronym, going back to that, I think it's something that it's probably been around for, for a long time, but I got it from Brian Tracy. Specific, can you define it? Is it well-defined? Measurable, right? Like meaning once you reach it, how do you know? Attainable, is it realistic? Meaning like attainable as in, we'll say, I want to lose 30 pounds by December and it's October. You know, that might be, I'm not going to do the math six pounds a week or something like that, it, that may not be attainable, right? So specific, measurable, attainable. And then the R is for relevant. And I think this is super important because in the digital age where we live a life of comparison, I think that probably you and I do the same, just like anybody else. We're setting goals that may not actually be something we're interested in. It's something that one of our friends are interested in or the cool people are doing. But is it really something that I'm interested in? Is it relevant to your life? Because if it's not relevant, you're not going to be inspired to do the work to accomplish it. And last but not least, time-based, right? So when will you accomplish this goal? You got to put a time on it, deadline. So specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based is the SMART acronym. It's still simple. You don't have to overcomplicate it. I didn't come up with anything new. It's just you got to do it consistently over time. For many of our leaders, we do this in our business lives and... Yet in our personal lives, we're not working out as much as we would like, and we're working more hours than many of us would like. And you can argue that we have to, but I'm not sure that gets to the bottom of it. You're right. It doesn't. Again, I think we have a personal responsibility to, to grow, which means we have a personal responsibility to take care of ourselves. And yes, our jobs are important. You know, our job, we're going to spend the majority of our lives working. And that can be a good or a bad thing, depending on what you do. But it is inevitable to have to work a lot, right? Especially during certain seasons. However, to answer your question, what, what gets in the way, we get in our way. Our bad habits that we've accumulated over months, years of our lives get in the way. Our excuses get in the way. Our unhealthy relationships get in the way, right? So the best way that I can approach this particular obstacle is something I call a time budget. Hopefully, 
Every responsible adult has a financial budget and hopefully they stick to it pretty well. And the reason why financial budgeting is important because we don't want to go in, in debt or in more debt. We don't want to lose the things that we've spent our money on, et cetera. So we usually know what's coming in and what's going out. With time, it could arguably be said that it's easier, right? Because every week God gives us 168 hours. There's never been a week that you've woken up and had more or less time. Each week, you know, I'm going to have a budget of 168 hours. On average, I work 50 hours a week. Let's be honest. You're not working 90. You might be working 50, right? So let's reel that in and, and define it for what it is. Hopefully, you're sleeping seven hours a night. That's 49. And the list goes on, right? Maybe you pick up the kids from soccer on Mondays and Wednesdays, and you've got movie night with the, the wife on Fridays. Like Add that all into your time budget. You've got your side hustle for 12 hours a week, school. And then, you know, find out what's left and use what's left to commit to the, uh, what I call like variables, right? Getting invited out, making last minute plans, going to watch the fight on a Saturday night, things like that. Because at the end of the day, we always say, oh, I, I didn't have time to work out. No, you had plenty of time to work out. You didn't make time to work out because you didn't put it in your budget. That's like getting to the end of the week and saying, oh, I don't have money for food. No, you're going to make money. Like you will find the money for food because it's, you have to eat. It could be argued that you have to work out. The time budget is a big thing that I push because I think it's so practical and it's measurable because it's math. And if we applied it, it would be world changing. So you also talk about self-talk. What's the impact both pro and con? This is funny because I'm like the worst at it sometimes with myself. But, you know, in the, in the confidence chapter, one of the first things that I address is our self-talk. And it, this could be said to be one of the biggest deals in the whole book. If we talked to our friends or our loved ones, that we, the way that we talk to ourselves, sometimes we wouldn't have any friends or loved ones, right? I can be so critical of myself. You and I are the same in that we spend 100% of our time with ourselves, right? Whether we're speaking out loud or we're thinking in our mind, we question our own judgment. We get mad at ourselves for being late. We you know, don't think we're very good at things that we're actually good at, right? And we're, we're saying these things over and over and over again in our mind. Something bad happens in the morning, and now we've convinced ourselves that we have a bad day. And so, you know, our, the way that we talk to ourselves can either catalyze a, a good quality of life, good friendships, good relationships, great work environment, good work productivity and results, or the opposite, right? If we're always negative. And so I address those things in the book, Realistic reframing is one of the main solutions that I propose in the book. And what that is, because I am just a positive realist. I wouldn't say that I'm an optimist. I don't wake up on the bright side of the bed. I usually wake up on the wrong side. So what that means for me is that when I can catch my negative thoughts, I realistically reframe them. And there's plenty of examples in the book, but one that I like to address is I'm not a good test taker. Well, you're going to have plenty of tests from childhood through the rest of your life. There's going to be some type of test. It may not be on a Scantron ABCD, but you're going to be taking tests. You're going to have to memorize things and apply them to life and in your career throughout the rest of your life, most likely. And so to convince yourself early on that you are, quote unquote, not a good test taker, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you say that in your mind, you say that to people, it's going to be the truth, right? But you can't just wake up tomorrow and be like, I am the best test taker. Because let's be honest, you haven't spent the time to make that transition. So realistic reframing could be, historically, I have not done that great at tests. However, 
I have prepared differently and more thoroughly for this particular test. So I'm confident that I will do above average, right? Like you're realistically reframing the tone and your brain can accept that. For me, I can't tell myself, Jared, you are an overcomer. You're a Superman as far as I'm concerned and you're going to crush this test. It doesn't work for my brain. I need to be realistically reframed to accept it as truth and apply it. And so that's a big thing in the self-talk part of the book. One of the statistics, and I don't remember where it came from, but five minutes of negative thinking causes six hours of physiological impact. Think about how often you say to yourself, I just can't do this, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not prepared enough. I should have left the house earlier. I'm going to be late again. You know, the things that we just do throughout our day, every day, each is a micro dose of what happens when, you know, I grew up in DC and I tend to drive fast and I'm driving down, you know, a 12 lane highway and a Christmas tree falls off a truck or, you know, the things that happen when you drive on a highway often enough. At least for me, it's the, and probably all of us, you grab the wheel, you look right, left, forward, and you make the evaluation, which way can I go to have the least harm to me and others? And then my body, when I am able to regain control of the car and pull off to the side or keep going, feels like I've just run a marathon or something. It's full of adrenaline and stress hormones and most of our listeners know what that feels like. And yet throughout our day, we do micro doses of that. This idea of positive reframing seems so important to be able to say, yes, I left the house late. I am potentially two minutes late and this person will give me a grace period. They won't notice or whatever, rather than the, I'm a total moron. I know better kind of conversation that I occasionally have. And I think many of our listeners can relate to whatever variation of I go to my default and then I reframe so that I can walk into the meeting feeling positive rather than feeling already starting on a negative tone because I'm angry with myself. And people will read that as I'm angry with them. Yeah. People can often feel your emotions. So try to reframe those as well if you can. And it sounds like you have a section in the book that specifically focuses on what it is and how to do it. On realistic reframing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things you talk about then is how can people think about linear growth and what can you think about in comparison? Linear growth is always moving up, right? The problem is we sort of become one track minded when it comes to growth. And when we stop seeing it, we stop pursuing it. An example would be if I'm passionate about my fitness and I'm trying to get stronger, your body's going to adapt to all the stimuli that you apply to it, right? So eventually if you bench press three times a week, every week for 10 weeks, come to 10th week, you're probably not going to see any strength gains and you're going to get discouraged and maybe stop working out as much. But the mindset has to be, okay, well, I've stopped growing in this particular area because I've adapted, which means I need to take a step back from, again, this particular area and where else can I grow right now, right? And so, again, if we're going to stay in fitness, maybe you pursue a a squat progression program. If you can't grow in your bench press right now because your body's adapted and needs a break, let's see if you can get your squat up. 
Same could be applied to your career, right? If you've gotten this new job out of college and you've been there for a couple of years, you've worked your way up over four or five years and you've hit a wall vocationally and you're thinking, well, I guess I should stop being an overachiever. I should stop going over and above. I should stop leading from the front because clearly there's no upward trajectory for me in the, in the short term. That doesn't mean you stop growing in general. Maybe you stop trying to pursue that particular opportunity continue to be a great employee, but maybe now you try to see where can I grow at home, right? I've worked my butt off over these past couple of years and my kids are getting a little older. Maybe I can focus right now in this season of being the best possible dad I can be, right? And try to grow in that area, right? So we will see roadblocks in our growth, but you can't, like I said, maybe you need to turn one burner down and you turn the other burner up on the stove, but you can live a life of never ending growth. It just isn't always going to be in the same particular area all the time. You have to be able to be conscious and self-aware enough to know that, okay, well, I'm starting to see a decline in growth in this particular area. Mm-hmm. Where do I need to shift elsewhere, reapply some of my focus and my attention? And then by the time you've capped in that area, you can revisit the other area and probably going to see an opportunity. And most likely the work that you've done in these other areas will apply to this new opportunity. And you'll see that sort of the divinity in, in your hard work. Yeah, I love the idea that, you're not saying you have to excel at everything all the time. It, it's not practical that right. I have a fitness program. I'm super mom. I help my aging parents. I do a great job. I've just finished writing a textbook. They ebb and flow and they fit together more like a jigsaw puzzle than lanes on a highway, at least for me. I mean, it comes down to a lot of self-awareness and that's like an underlying principle throughout the book. And I think throughout the life of a leader, but you have to be conscious enough to know that, hey, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue writing a new textbook. I want to do this extremely well. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to allocate a higher level of attention and focus to this thing, which means I need to pull that away from something else. And that's where you revisit your time budget. You used to spend X amount of time. Let's say you used to spend two hours in the gym five days a week. And you were trying to run a half marathon at the time. You did it. So now you can reel it in and go for an hour three times a week and reallocate that same seven extra hours now to writing this textbook. You'll never find more time. You just have to reallocate the existing time that hopefully you've stewarded well previously. I do like the idea of a time budget and also an energy budget. How am I investing my energy when it is most fresh for the things I care about most, like the writing of a book. Yeah. And that's a great point. I didn't talk enough about that in the book. I think that's sort of a revelation I had, or at least maybe a revelation I had on the surface after writing the book. I remember reading a quote, time is not our greatest asset. Energy is, I don't remember who said it. It was sort of eye-opening for me because it was something that I had believed for a long time, but didn't put into words. Like, yes, time Mm -hmm. is a non-renewable resource, but how we spend our time is even more important, right? And knowing like, okay, I need to do my best work from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. That's when I'm most alive and that's when the house is the quietest or whatever. So then I need to write the textbook during that. But the stuff that I can do on autopilot, I'll do in the afternoon, you know, whatever it may be, right? So Mm -hmm. you have to allocate your greatest level of energy to the highest priorities. I think that's a great point. Thank you. So then you also talk about connecting with others and the importance of those connections. Can you explain 
why it's so important and what are your recommendations for building and sustaining connections? What I love about the book is there's a bunch of quotes. I love quotes and a few come to mind. I don't know who says this. I think it's like an African proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, right? And if you look at every great entrepreneur, business person, leader, they've all had a team. No man is an island or a woman, of course. And (laughs) the idea that we can live a life of continued growth alone is not accurate one, but it doesn't sound very fun either. And so connections are this massive counterpart to a life of growth because you're always one connection away from radically changing your life. To live a life of constantly seeking out healthy connections, you will inevitably continue to level up, whether it's in your career or your friendships or your relationships, right? You might be one friendship away from being introduced to your future spouse. You could be one relationship away from just, you know, a new best friend. You never really know until you start to make a conscious commitment to make more connections. And of course, I wrote this book before last year. It hasn't been revised due to COVID, but the principles and the practical teachings in there are still the same. And they're a little bit easier to do now than, of course, last year. But hypothetically, you know, the connections piece talks a lot about it. Let's say you, you move to a new city and a lot of people like isolate themselves for a period of time in a new city. And this gives you a lot of practical steps to just meeting people, finding the type of people that you want to spend time with. I think a lot of people move to a new city, they take a job and at their job, maybe the people aren't their kind of people. And so they're like, oh, this city sucks. And it's like, no, you just haven't found your people. And so the, the book talks a lot about how to find your people. You know, there's little things in there that I learned along the way, right? Like the proper handshake, which is a big deal. Making eye contact, remembering people's names, using people's names. I read a book when I was 11 that changed my life. It was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I'm sure most of the audience has heard of that book. And it changed how I treated people. It changed how I approached adults, right? I was 11 at the time. And it made me a far more assertive human being. And I began to accomplish a lot more, even at an early age. And so it goes into some of these practical steps to making better connections from the very beginning, right? Shaking hands, making eye contact, not being weird about it, Um, using people's names, but not being weird about that either, right? Nobody wants the guy that's like, hey, Maureen, how are you, Maureen? Is it a good, you know, like you're like, well, it's too many times, you know? Yeah, connections are powerful. And I go into a lot of ways, you know, because there's this belief, and I believe in the whole introversion, extroversion thing, but introverts still need to make connections. And so it talks about that, right? There's a certain way that introverts go about making connections that's a little different than extroverts. But the idea of making connections is not particular to one type of person or the other. Well, and the idea that we have accountability partners and practice partners, whether it's a workout buddy or a bicycling partner or a diet partner or a learning partner with professional skills, a mentor or a sponsor, to your point, we don't do this journey alone. And there are always people out there who will co-benefit from helping us as we help them. Right. So you also talked about reading. You reference a lot of quotes and you just talked about reading, winning friends and influencing people at 11. So have you always been a reader? Yeah. I haven't always been like a self-help kind of reader, but you know, early on we were poor growing up and didn't always have access to like television and stuff. I mean, we did a lot, but not all the time. We didn't have cable most of the time, things like that. So I just ended up reading a lot. It was something that obviously is more affordable. 
My dad could hand me a book and I'd just get lost in it. And in elementary school, I went to five different elementary schools. I got kicked out of three of them. I was you know, always in a lot of trouble as a kid. I was somewhat of a problem child, but I was very smart. I was a kid in class that finished you know, early and then I would start to get in trouble. And so eventually my teachers kind of learned this hack to just like hand me a book and maybe send me to the library where they had couches or maybe have me sit outside of the classroom and just read this book. And they would challenge me. I remember one teacher challenged me. She's, uh, she would like give me you know, a candy bar if you tell me about the first chapter by the end of class or something like that. I always liked the challenge. You know, I remember reading all of the Harry Potter books in like one calendar year right when, they, right when I had access to them. So yes, I have always read books as long as I can remember. I've always been reading. I remember being like very young and learning how to read and just reading billboards as we would drive and it drove my dad crazy. I just really love reading. And then it transitioned, obviously, as I became an adult to business books, self-help books. And then, you know, as I became a believer, it became a mix of business, self-help and Christian, whether it be theology based or self-help Christian book in and of itself. And this past year, I've added back a lot of fiction. I've read a good bit of fiction this year just to have more fun with it. You know, I've read a ton of the other kinds of books, so I wanted to add some flexibility back into my life. One of the things we talk about from the leadership lens specifically is being intellectually versatile. I read as a kid like you all the time. And there were kid books like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and all that stuff. And I finished all of those and then went on to whatever next. And now reading or listening to books through Audible has been, and you can get them through your library. It's amazing. We have these resources for no cost. And specifically, listening to things that aren't directly related. So whether they're biographies of famous leaders, or we're listening to one right now, Stealing Fire, that talks about early rituals that were conducted by secret societies and how they relate, like how Navy SEALs come together and work in lockstep together. As a leadership person, it's always interesting to see tangentially how those things that aren't directly published in Harvard Business Review can also really inform and make me better at what I do. Yeah, I'm always looking for little nuggets of like, where can I apply? You know, I was reading like Homer's Odyssey and just how can I leverage this poetic, captivating, confusing, mythological story to stimulate some type of growth in the life of my leadership, right? I, I guess I'm looking, sometimes I'll look a little bit too deeply, but it is what it is. Like I listen to a lot of biographies and the fiction stuff again has been fun for me this year because I'm not, I don't have much of an agenda when I'm reading fiction. And so it allows my mind more free space to flow and then to find a, a random revelation versus like a self-help book. I'm digging and I'm looking hmm. for my next best idea and practical insight and so on and so forth. I don't know that you can look too deeply in my opinion. So, yeah. but that's what I do. So you talk about character. Tell me a little bit more. You picked six things and character was one of them. What does character mean to you and why? Quote unquote, good character is hard to define, right? Because morality isn't necessarily in the Western culture is different than Eastern culture, different in all these different countries, but things like being honest, being integral, being fair, serving others, generosity, 
consistency, being honest with yourself. I think those sort of cover all the bases. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a part of a culture that didn't think that those were good or important morals. And so the character chapter, it gets a little bit deep and personal, but my belief is that if you work on all these other things, confidence, clarity, commitment, connections, but you don't have the characters to sustain it, you will lose it. And, or it's just not, it's not that great, right? Who wants to be a bad person with a good life? It doesn't really make sense. You know, who wants to live all alone in the ivory tower with all your money and all your things, but no friends because you don't have the characters to sustain friendships and relationships, right? So this chapter revisits the idea that sometimes we can get so caught up in success that we lose sight of our foundations and uh, argue that it's probably the most important chapter in the book and probably the most challenging because going back to kind of the self-talk piece, we lie to ourselves more than we lie to anybody else, right? We justify the bad decisions that we make and we, you know, maybe speaking from personal experience, we're driven by agendas and maybe not always driven by serving people. And so this is just a chapter to revisit, you know, how can I take a step back from my bubble, my world that I'm encapsulated in and maybe see how I can be a part of other people's world and do it the right way. There's a series of questions at the beginning of every chapter to just ask, like, do you need to grow in confidence? Do you need to grow in connections? And of course, at the beginning of the character chapter, there's questions about how often do you lie? Is it something you're comfortable with? And hopefully people are open-minded enough to address these questions. These are just for you, but not for anybody else. But if you find, for example, that you, you lie a lot or that you're late all the time, I think that's a character deficiency. If you're late every day, if you're late every once in a while and you live in Atlanta or something, that's like inevitable, right? But if you're that guy or gal that's always late or always flaking on your friend's plans or always lying, it's not going to end up well for you long-term. And you might be asking yourself, oh, why can't I be successful like so-and-so? And it's like, well, it might be your character. You might not have the character to sustain long-term success. And God or whoever you believe in is not going to just hand it out. So that's my opinion. And that's why I think that chapter is so important. You know, for me, they are things like humility. And we talk about professional humility a lot, having the willingness to admit when you made a mistake, own it, and extending the grace to others that you would like to have extended to you, because we're all going to make mistakes. If, if we're growing, we're going to do stuff wrong. And so those, and then gratitude's another one yeah. for me defines character that I have now chosen to be around people who are positive and grateful. It's funny for people to be snarky and sarcastic, but I don't want that as the center of my world. It's more entertaining when it's at a distance. We inevitably adapt to our surroundings. So if we're always hanging out with cranky people, we're going to find ourselves crankier than normal. If we hang out with positive people, as long as we have self-confidence, we're going to turn into a positive person. If we're around grateful people, servant people, we're going to mask those characteristics. And so yeah, that is one of the things that the book addresses is the people you spend your time with. And it's been said a million times, right? You're an average of the five people you spend your time with. I think that's relatively true. And so one of the easiest ways to become more generous and more grateful and more humble is to pinpoint like, who do I know that's generous, grateful, humble, and how can I spend more time with them? And one of the tough things, I think this is something I had to address a long time ago in my life was this question, like, how can I get around people like that? And the answer 
that I had to tell myself was, well, Jared, you might need to become more like that before they want to spend time with you. That was tough, you know, to address such a character deficiency in my own life. And it takes a lot of self-awareness and um, I would say humility, not to toot my own horn. And that a lot of people aren't willing to address the fact that maybe good people don't come around you because they don't think you're that good of a person. So that's, that's tough. And again, it's in the book and that's your own homework to do. But if that's the case, it doesn't mean you can't change because I promise you it's possible. Thank you. And thank you for your candor in talking about your own journey. Anyone I know who's become significantly successful has had to overcome, what do they say, that the longest distance in our lives happens to be between our ears, that crossing <laughs> that gap is, is yeah. a lot harder than running a marathon in some cases. On that note, you talk about mind-body connection. Can you share with our listeners a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you see it playing out? Yeah, you mentioned something earlier, stress, right? Like all the little negative things we say throughout the day can produce these little doses of cortisol on a very physiological, practical level. Increasing cortisol triggers our body to store more fat. It's sort of like a fight or flight mechanism. Mm -hmm. We get worse sleep because our adrenal glands are, are out of whack. So, you know, there's this physiological response to the thoughts that we allow in and out of our mind. And there's so many different ways we can control our thoughts. Again, we can go back to the self-talk, realistic reframing. We can go to the people we're spending our time with. We can go to, you know, the clarity chapter is huge. And it's something I struggle with is like getting away from our devices. And fasting, you know, fasting is one of the things I talk about in the clarity chapter. But of course, there's different ways of fasting. So I'll just clarify, this isn't a diet book. So it's not necessarily talking about intermittent fasting or anything like that, but maybe fasting from social media for a period of time, because you recognize that when your phone sends you the update and says, Jared, you've been on Instagram for an average of nine hours a day. And you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> right? So, you know, the mind body connection, if you can create a healthier mind, you're going to have a healthier body. And the clarity chapter talks a lot about gaining clarity in your life, which could be either fasting or getting alone or reading a book or taking a break or so on and so forth. And so that's a really, really big deal. And if we want to live a life of never-ending growth, our mind and our body have to be healthy enough to sustain that kind of activity. So it's something we have to be conscious of. I read a study, this was years ago, that talked about what they called CrossFit, which isn't now the current CrossFit programs, but blending things like meditating and weightlifting. So for the study group of people who both meditated and lifted weights, both were accelerated because they were doing the other activity than meditation alone or weightlifting alone. So I assume pairing activities that build our physical and emotional and spiritual health create a positive reinforcement loop for each of the elements. Absolutely. I agree entirely. You've given a lot of really good ideas, and I'm assuming some of our listeners are saying, boy, I used to make time for that either pre-COVID or before I had kids or before I got this big job or whatever, and I haven't, I just lost track of it, and I want to restore some balance in my life. What do you advise for people who've just changed focus and they want to return to something that's a little healthier? Not to be too heavy handed on the book plug, but I would 
recommend reading the book because I can give a few recommendations on this on today's show, but the book's going to have a plethora and one of them might ring a little bit more true than anything I could say in the next two minutes. However, aside from reading the book, I would say two things. One, revisit the time budget. Take a piece of paper out today. Don't postpone doing a time budget because that's just going to be a red flag (laughs) that you're never going to do it. 168 and subtract all the things that can't go away. Put all the random variables in there and then begin to address how you need to change that to adapt to the type of lifestyle you want to live. And then two, I would adapt or adopt the habit of journaling. Um, Whether it's one minute every day or five to 10 minutes, take a moment at the beginning or the end of the day and begin to write your thoughts, write about the type of life you want to live, the type of person you want to be, begin to ask yourself these questions that are in the book. Oftentimes, the answers you're seeking are seeking you, right? They're well within you. People are a lot smarter than they think. They just rarely dig enough into their own mind to find the answers. And journaling does that for me. I think it'll do it for them as well. Beautiful. I love the questions and recommendations to help people reconnect with what they're passionate about. So if you could give one word of advice to our listeners, what would it be? Believe you can grow. Beautiful. Thank you, Jared. So as we wrap up, where would people find you? And I'm assuming the book is on Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all of our online bookstores. They can find the book anywhere online. Of course, Amazon's going to get it to them the fastest. And uh, you can find anything about me, jaredgraybeal.com, but I am most active on Instagram, which is at Jared A-X-L Graybeal. I'm a storyteller, so you'll get to find more stories on that platform as well. And what's next for you? Still trying to figure that out. You know, I have, I give myself like a hard deadline by August. I'll decide where to live and not necessarily decide what to do because I can't create the type of opportunity out of thin air. I'm, I'm sort of pursuing an opportunity in the business world, the business of CrossFit though, which is very unique. So a lot of prayer, a lot of uh, handshaking and meeting people throughout this journey across the country, a lot of learning and just trying to fill up my weak spots in this particular area. A lot of thinking through, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm versed in a handful of different areas to decide on one to work on in the next five to 10 years is very difficult. So I don't have a concrete answer for that, but it'll be something in business something in fitness and something that I can make the largest impact possible. So it's about the impact then. 100%. For our listeners, I want to thank you for investing your time as you think about a time budget. What do you value most and where do you invest in your own growth, whether it is fitness or to use Jared's terms, do you need to build confidence? Is there an area of your life that you want to expand your competence? Are you trying to create clarity, like Jared just mentioned, looking at his next step? Are you looking at building your own character or who are you connected with? And is there a gap between what you're trying to accomplish and is there a connection that would help you? And then what are your commitments and how are you sustaining those? So I encourage you to certainly look at Jared's book. Look him up online at jaredgraybeal.com. Look him up on Instagram and think about the self-reflective piece, the journal piece. What is your opportunity for growth now? And how does that connect with your purpose and your impact and your values? So I thank you for listening. You, our listeners, are the people making the biggest impact in the world. And we thank you for 
continuing to grow and be the best leaders and people you can be. Please continue to listen, share like us, and ensure that others are able to listen as well. So thank you. And we look forward to having you join us again in the near future. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week. Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today.